Welcome to Road Scholar, a podcast dedicated to roadside Americana, strange museums, and anything else that is sort of travel-related in the United States and abroad. My name is Rob Kimberly, and I am your host today. I also blog under Neon Poisoning, for those of you who have not read my website, and probably still won't after this. Uh, I'm here with Amber, who is from the ITP. Mostly ITP. Mostly ITP. And all things Georgia Podcast Network-related. And so what we're going to be including in that is uh, some commonly shared uh, appreciations of weird things that you have to drive to, huge things, bizarre museums, and often collections that come about for no particular reason. And we're going to start a little bit about uh, what's in Georgia, since we both are residents of Atlanta, and there seem to be an awful lot of things Odd within driving there distance. is a lot of weird stuff and the more that you look for it the more you seem to find all this really weird kitschy stuff and um, people look at me funny when I describe some of the things that I get excited about seeing um, but I just have this appreciation for weird things we traveled God knows how many miles I don't know how far it is to uh, Leslie Georgia which has a population of about 500 as close to Americas to the Georgia Rural Telephone Museum, which uh, is has apparently the largest collection in the world of antique telephones, and it's just and a bunch of other just weird telephone-related memorabilia history. And then they also have things that just aren't telephone-related at all, like they have this collection of um, Indian arrowheads, just because the guy who runs the place is interested in arrowheads. There does seem to be on occasion with these weird collections a strange offshoot. Like yeah. at the Bruce Verner uh, microcar museum in, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on that, but uh, we'll include a link to it or something to that effect. Uh, a fabulous collection of, of microcars not too far away from Atlanta. He also has a collection of vintage motorboats, motor uh, boat engines, and uh, bubblegum since his fortune that... Bubblegum? His fortune that helps fund this motor car collection actually came about because of his purchase and sale of double bubble bubblegum. Really? Yes. It's at Double Bubble Acres, I think is the name. Is Double Bubble still a... existing brand. It, it apparently is. Uh, even if it's not, it somehow made him enough money to uh, purchase a massive collection of microcars, which are cars that came about uh, mainly in Europe after World War II due to the scarcity of materials. So people had a need for transportation, but didn't have the ability to build huge cars like we were in the United States. So you had these small three- and four-wheeled vehicles in his collection. Uh, he and he's almost everything on display in this beautiful, well-appointed, well-lit, uh, well-exhibited display has been restored. So unlike, say, some other possible collections that people may have seen or would imagine, these are immaculate. These are not a rusted collection of vehicles where you're walking around kicking chickens out of your way to get to the vehicles <laughs> in the barn. Uh, this is a, a fantastic uh exhibition of I believe it's over 200 vehicles and growing Um, and apparently uh, from what I gathered cannot get that much information on the man who collects the machines but his mechanic and his wife actually are the folks that man the museum when it's open and it's open only open 
three hours a day or four hours a day, I believe, and it's not open on weekends, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, again, not too far away from Atlanta, and you can actually, if you search for Micro Car Museum online, you can find his website and uh, see actually an excellent Unlike a lot of uh, roadside attractions, this one has an excellent website where you can get a very good taste of what it yeah, has. Yeah, most of them don't, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. But, you know, eccentrics uh, who have visions that come to them. It's part of the charm. It is part way. of the charm. And I do. I, that is another aspect of these, these uh, collections is often I have yet to see, retro, yet to recall any collection or sort of roadside attraction that was actually created by a woman. Usually they seem to be either by single men or men with extremely patient wives. <laughs> That's who, true. I hadn't thought about that. Who but... uh, tend to allow them to have their way with these flights of fancy. Well, I used to have a dream of opening a vintage computer museum. I collected old computers mm -hmm. for a long time, as much as I could, you know, as a college student with... The limited resources. No money, pretty much. Yeah. And nowhere to put them. I mean, they... You know, I, I got to the point where... Running out of, I was running out of room for them in my apartment, so I had to take some of them back to Augusta to my mm -hmm. parents' house. They were patient with that for a while, but then they started to bug me about, so when are you going to get these computers out of here? Uh, but uh, and finally, I ended up. It was it was sad, but I had to sell a lot of them just because I needed money and I didn't have room. And now I just have a Mac Plus in my closet. These and that's the thing. These things often seem to come about uh, as a combination of serious passion and a lack of uh, restraint or common sense. <laughs> uh, and speaking of that, actually, I do have as one of our Georgia attractions. Um, Joni Maybe and everything Elvis, including his war, is actually one of the things that does break my rule, which is this is a woman named Joni Maybe, or it may be Mabe, it's M-A-B-E. She has amassed a massive collection of Elvis memorabilia and paintings of her own creation, and also she purports to actually have a wart of Elvis's that is in formaldehyde, I believe. How does one acquire a wart of Elvis's? I am trying to recall uh, one of the things that is available to folks in Atlanta is on the local PBS station they have a show that is uh, Atlanta road trips or Georgia road trips and it kind of covers the same topics that we are covering except we do not have as nearly big hair as the host does. Um, <laughs> and if we do, you don't know because you can't see. No, we, we, we do have hair for the internet. Um, but uh, this is a very wonderful woman who uh, is the host of the show. Uh, one of her trips took her to Joni Maybe, and I am trying to recall how Miss Maybe got her hands on the wart, but she also, uh, when visiting Graceland, uh, Miss Maybe actually reached down and touched the carpet of the jungle room and came up with a prized toenail. Oh so she now has apparently all the genetic DNA to recreate Elvis if she chooses to. But well, how does she know that that's his toenail? It could be anybody's toenail. I think it's just uh, hope, hoping hope, yeah. against hope. Well, I think that, you know, you should try to contact her and interview her for this podcast because oh. we need to know about the wart. And oh. can I just say that wart of Elvis sounds like the name of some exotic plant or 
Either that Vegetable. or a band that might be playing at the Earl this yes, weekend. Yes, that's... Anyways, uh, let's touch upon some other places in uh, Georgia that can be hit. Uh, there's a really interesting wide range of places to go to, uh, from the previously mentioned Bruce Werner Microcar Museum or uh, Joni Maybe's Everything Elvis, including this Wart Museum and Boarding House Guest House, where you can stay the night. Um, there is also... In Columbus, Georgia, the Lunchbox Museum, which is a collection of metal lunchboxes held uh, all owned by one individual. I've uh, got to go there. Yeah. Uh, again, the, one of the great things about these road trips is they also often, for those who we, us who live in large cities, compel us to go to places that we wouldn't otherwise go visit. And uh, another place worthwhile visiting for its just sheer bizarreness is the Georgia Guidestones, <laughs> which if you're heading from Atlanta, you go through Colbert, Georgia, which for those of you who are fans of the Colbert Report, it's just fun to see Mr. Colbert's name on everything. I don't Colbert. think they pronounce it that way, but that's sure is that's to, to true to say they do. Yeah, so it's Colbert. And, and that's another thing that when you drive to these places, the drive is half the fun because you pass through a lot of places and stumble upon other weird things. The joy that, of discoveries. Yeah, that there's yeah. no way you would know exist at all, but you just find things. And I mean, rural Georgia is weird. Enjoyably so. Like, uh, yeah, it's great. W- with the Georgia Guidestones, uh, this is in the, the granite uh, producing. Granite capital of the world. Thank you. And literally, when you drive through this community, you'll get to areas where they do produce and mine the granite, and the ground is littered with the stuff. It's like they dug it up, and then they didn't know what to do with it. You'll see some of it scattered along these warehouses next to them, and you don't have to worry about keeping it undercover, so you have just piles of it uh, stacked like lumber outside in preparation for a project, but then you see all this scrap stuff. And at the Elberton uh, Granite Museum and Exhibit, which uh, when you go to the Guidestones is probably your best first stop, uh, they have scrap granite for you to take home with you because they want you to take a little bit of Elberton home with you. And uh, the folks who man the desk there are really fantastic. Uh, when my wife and I went there, it was an older gent who was manning the desk. And this is their this is the main industry of Elberton. So they are passionate about granite, including videos and displays of process, materials, equipment that would help them mine. This is what this made the fortune for this community. And then the more interesting project and the one that was kind of infamous in the community is the Guidestones, which is a project dedicated, some people believe, to a celebration of the ideals of the New World Order. It's a huge display that has, uh, I want to say, five upright monolithic stones with a capstone. Four or five? Five. Uh, four, uh, four with a centerpiece that has right. holes drilled through it for astrological alignment. Um, right. the, the Guidestones are dedicated to a collection of ideals, including be not a cancer on the world mm-hmm. and something uh, where you should not listen to politicians. And those aren't necessarily bad ideas to believe in. But uh, the and pop- it's in uh, how many languages? I believe it's in 12. I think they were aiming to, with the languages that were included on this guidestone, they managed to get at least 90% of the reading population in the world to uh, qualify for this. How they're getting to Elberton, Georgia, I don't know. 
but the uh, Guidestones were created by or commissioned by a man named R.C. Christensen, or Christian, I believe. Uh, he started an escrow account at the bank locally in Elberton. The man that uh, kept these funds and transferred these funds to the company that produced the stone uh, monument uh, kept his identity a secret and died. the secret died with him. So a man who had showed up twice in Elberton, Georgia, commissioned these guide stones, which were the biggest project that they'd ever worked on, and then left, leaving no trace of himself or uh, the group that he purportedly uh, was associated with and helped sponsor the, the erection of these huge, uh, well, it's not massive. It's smaller than you would think. You're like thinking... It's pretty big, it, though. It's big, but you kind of hope for something bigger. That's one of the interesting things mm, about these monuments yeah. is you always wish they were made. Well, they get built up, you know. And... They do. Now, when the Godstones were erected when? The 80s? Is that uh, right? They were first commissioned in 79, and I believe it took them oh, a few okay. years. And the part of the reason why they were built there is the, the sponsor... RC, uh, wished to have had them placed in a place that would last for a long time, and they actually suggested Elberton because it made it easier for transportation. Makes sense. It was not too far away from where these stones were produced, and for most part, uh, it's interesting to see how nice they look and how well proofread for the most part they are. There is one typo. There is one typo, mm -hmm. which uh, it, it's pseudonym. Yes, pseudonym. That's that made pseudonym. it in. Uh, which made my wife, who is a British literature uh, professor, uh, very upset. I have a photo and of it on my... It's paper. excellent. It's almost where you want to commission an M and then just glue it over the N <laughs> and then run away because you're defacing the property. Uh, from this bizarre monument to you also have, not too far away from Atlanta, the Kangaroo Conservation Center, which is a nicely run, not cheesy at all, uh, conservancy to, for kangaroos. It's the largest collection of kangaroos outside of uh, Australia. And they are a fascinating collection of animals in that they're all charismatic. They're all jumping around. Well, they're not all jumping around, but they're all very individual in their appearance. Some of them are lounging around. Some of them are jumping around. Some of them are just chilling. And yet none of them jump over the six-foot fences that are surrounding their cages. They don't. They're very social. They're very group oriented, and they, the grounds which you get to walk around, uh, they're more than happy to be where they are. So this is a great collection of animals that uh, is really fascinating to see. Uh, getting more eccentric uh, and not too far away from the Kangaroo Conservation Center is Howard Finster's Paradise Gardens, which is the quintessential outsider artist. I've not been there. I want clay. to go there. I've yet to be there, but Howard Finster is uh, known throughout the art world and actually has pieces in the High Museum, which you can see, and his uh, Paradise Gardens is apparently an extension of all that he believed and that was being a minister to God and Christ. And his collection, which this, these gardens, which were in disrepair for some time after his death, apparently was willed to a church not too far away from where these gardens reside. And maybe in a state of uh, repair or preservation. And that's another one of these issues with these sort of mm -hmm. things is because they come about because of an individual, if the individual goes away, there isn't always the things in place that protect them for longevity's sake. Well, I feel like we should mention uh, 
we're about uh, out of time here, but okay. uh, I think we should mention, also on our religious note, tying in, um, the New Albion Nation of Moors. Yes. Which you say has is no longer there, has I, been bulldozed, apparently. For some reason, I want to say uh, through internet research. Uh, I need to look that up. But I, I went there in... Um, give us a little background on this and how it looks. And I, I followed this a little, you know, sort of closely. Um, because the guy who was... Um, it's a cult, basically. Um, and based around, sort of around Egyptian religious beliefs. But it's... Not just that, it's there's more weirdness, I don't really know, but the guy who was basically the cult leader uh, went by the name of Malachi York, and they were located in Eatonton, and they also had a building that they, uh, I guess was their outpost or something, that was in downtown Athens uh, for a while. They had it all decked out, decorated, you know, with all their crazy symbols and everything. But anyway, the guy, uh, the cult leader, was convicted of child molestation several years ago. And this huge compound that they had just Which out, included pyramids and pyramids, recreations of Egyptian... Sphinx, just all kinds of crazy stuff. Huge, huge complex outside of Eatonton um, where they all lived and, you know, that was their life. And um, loved and... <laughs> lived and loved and everything else. Uh, when he was convicted... It, the whole thing fell apart. I don't know where the former cult members went, but they weren't there anymore. And I went there in, uh, I want to say it was January of 2005. And when I went there, uh, there was a fence around the whole place. The whole place was deserted. Um, we took photos, but couldn't go in, obviously, because of the fence and everything. And also, we just felt like even if we could have gone in, we just felt like we didn't really want to because it just it felt weird. It just felt like, well, there's nobody around, there's nothing here, but we're just not supposed to be here. Let's just get our photos and get out of here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the last I had heard of it was that the property was for sale and that there had been some problems with tax evasion issues. And um, that's the last I had heard of it, but apparently you say it's been bulldozed. Uh, from what I recall reading, uh, due to the legal issues involved with this, uh, the local authorities had torn it down, uh, apparently quite happily, too. But uh, yeah, the, the folks with this this drive for passion and spirituality don't seem to most, be the most fiscally sound often. So yeah. these this is a problem again. Well, uh, this will be the end of this episode. Uh, thank you for joining us for Road Scholar. Uh, look forward to broadcasting with you again.